Coming to you from the satellite tour of Pune, it's the Toho Podcast, proven to have the most elegant unmaku outside world occultism. I'm F, and with me today are JT, Yo. and me. Hi! Due to a mysterious Piero, Katya and Lavanda will not be joining us this week. I'm sure they'll be fine. Yeah, I'm sure they won't yeah. end up with any unfortunate coffee or being nailed to trees or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> So this week, we're talking about dolls in pseudo-paradise. Anything else you want to talk about before we get into that? Any uh, surprise events, Sumareko sightings? I don't think so. We're sort of in the post-game news lull of Toho. I'm sure there yeah. will be a big announcement in coming months, but for now, we must look inward. Yeah. Yeah. Arrange your Renmary pentagrams to try and summon them into this world, fans. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a comment from a friend of the podcast, Barstay, mentioning that we do tend to dive right into things and get very deep. And since we're going to be talking about something that's a little bit obscure... A little bit obscure? It's probably one of the most obscure things in Toho. I think only Sehu Project stuff is maybe more obscure. And that's not really Toho other than a couple cameos. Yeah. So yeah, so this is the... Deepest dive. Deep lore. Yeah. And what is it? It's a weirdly supernatural murder mystery slash slice of life, depending on which of the stories you're reading. There we have it. And so I think even before that, we should talk about what we say when we talk about the CDs and things. Because next week we're going to be doing The Ceiling Club, which is the... Yeah more iconic of the CD series. And so Zun is, first and foremost, a composer. He made the games to have something to put music in. So he's released CDs of mostly arranges of older songs from whenever it was made. With editions of newer songs, too, that he made exclusively for those CDs. Instead of, like, the track descriptions or lyrics or whatever, there are a story that accompanies each of the songs. And almost all of these story CDs are The Ceiling Club, Renko and Maribel, who are... Gay. Very yes. high profile as Toho goes, also gay. <laughs> um... <laughs> they have a very strong fandom presence. We've made some mention of the like thousand page Hifu fan Bible that was made it for one Dojin convention. For a non-game character, that's incredibly impressive. Yeah. yeah, they have whole separate ceiling club fandom conventions. It's a really big deal. On the other hand, Dolls and Pseudo Paradise, which was the one music CD with a story that Zoom created before the Hifu CDs, well, it has a cult following, but it doesn't exactly have a large one. It has a cult following by the standards of Toho, which is impressive. It has a cult following, but the cult is small enough that they can all get together every month for a potluck. It has a small town Masonic Lodge following. <laughs> True. I think you might call the Yifu fandom like a smallish church, whereas this is just some people getting together in the woods in the middle of the night to perform arcane rituals to summon Jacket Co and Label Co into this world. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, it's what fundamentalists think Dungeons and Dragons is about. <laughs> <laughs> to go beyond that, Dolls and Pseudo Paradise is also a little bit different from the later music CDs. A substantial amount of it is completely contemporary music at the time. It was originally released alongside Embodiment of Scarlet Devil, and then a second version was released a year later at the next comic hat. I think that's accurate, right? Yeah, and the original version and the second version both contain the same songs, but only the original version contains the murder mystery story. The second version contains the slice of life story. Which is actually pretty essential to understanding the murder mystery story. Yeah. It's a little bit confusing. <laughs> it's certainly one of Zun's most abstract works, I think. Like we Esoteric? Yeah, esoteric is a better word. We don't have names for any of the characters. We don't even have designs for the characters. There are two girls, one on the jacket and one on the label, who are just usually called Jacket Girl and Label Girl, uh, or Jacket Co and Label Co in Japanese. We don't know precisely who they are in the story. We, I think we all have our theories, but there are no characters named. There's no indication of where this is in the relation to the rest of Gensokyo. I have my theories on it. We all have our theories. 
Yeah, I think no two Dolls and Pseudo Paradise fans have the exact same interpretation of Dolls and Pseudo Paradise. A lot of them seem to ship Jacket Girl and Label well, Girl. Well, you know, it's... Well, I yeah. mean, yeah, it's Toho fans. Yeah, the lesbians have taken over this, too. <laughs> and soon we will take over the world. <laughs> so do we want to get into a general summary of the events that sort of happen, I guess? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. It's sort of uh, inspired off of Agatha Christie's and then there were none, but with a lot of liberties taken. It's sort of like if you filtered and then they were none through a Shakespearean play about fairies. <laughs> yeah, that's that pretty much is it, really. <laughs> yeah, and then you added a clown. Yeah, well, of course, but Shakespeare does that a lot, too. True. The story of Dolls and Pseudo Paradise talks about a group of what they call honest men who moved to a mountain in the east. And one of them gets lost and on the way loses their humanity. We don't know which one of them gets lost and loses their humanity. You can do it by elimination. Except they're said to be Eight honest men at the end. Well, they say at the beginning originally consisted of eight people. So the most curious one runs straight into the forest. They meet the mysterious Pierrot. And we're going to use that word a lot because it's translated as Pierrot. It's actually the French word for clown, which is the Japanese loan word for clown because they couldn't use both clown and crown in Japanese since Japanese is non-rhotic. So they used the French word instead. Mm -hmm. And so every time we say Pierrot... You can just interpret that as clown. Yeah, it's a traditional translation thing, I think, from people who didn't realize... But Pierrot was just a loan word. Yeah. It's not fancy French or anything. It's just, I'm going to hand you a clown. And I'm sure I'm not saying it properly. Pierrot. Yeah, Pierrot. Okay. I am bad at any and every language that I attempt to speak, so... <laughs> Which, of course, you know because I am a native English speaker. <laughs> I have spent 12 years learning French, and I'm still horrible at it, so I understand your frustrations. All I'm saying is for all that the English meme on the Welsh language, its orthography makes more sense than not only French, but also English. I don't speak Welsh, but I'm descended from them. The French orthography makes plenty of sense, it's just stupid. <laughs> Different notions of sense. Anyhow, back to the most curious of the group. They run off into the forest. They meet this mysterious Piro who has the jeweled branch of Hurai, which is, well, it is our first reference to the other version of the story. And it predates Kaguya as well, I believe. It predates Kaguya by a lot, like three years. Yeah, because it came out with... Embodiment of Scarlet Devil. That's a way back. Anyway, jeweled branch of Hurai. The moment that the most curious person, and this is told in first person, so it says, The moment I attempted to take hold of it, it was as if my head had been separated from my body. I could neither move nor make sound, so I was never able to see the others again. After that, there were seven honest men left. In the morning, I could see a shrine maiden in red and white dancing above the lake. As the earliest riser among our group, I was long entranced by that most vigorous of dances. Eventually, it began to rain, and by the time I came to my senses, the Shrine Maiden had disappeared. This is hindsight speaking. It's probably important to note that this is where they switch from reading segment two to segment three, so it's a different perspective. I didn't notice when it stopped raining. The Shrine Maiden had been soaked completely through, and it was as if she was melting into the rain. If I had been watching her, the rain had become a frightful storm, and I, the most beautiful one, was taken captive by a Piero. I disappeared into the storm along with it, and I was unable to return to where the others were. After that, there were six honest men left. So we have this storm taking one of the most honest men captive mentally, and then taking one of them captive physically, which is very interesting. <laughs> yes. Notably, the earliest riser does not see the Shrine Maiden disappear, but the most beautiful one sees that the Shrine Maiden has been soaked through and is melting into the rain. So in the time that the earliest riser is, you know, starstruck by people usually assume it's... Um, 
Label Co. Yeah, Label Co. The Shrine Maiden and put her as the the Hakari Shrine Maiden of the time. Uh, we'll get a little more into I think the theories later. People tend to assume that the most beautiful one is Jacket Go too, but we will get into that way later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the six that are left, or I guess F, you 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 if we're gonna rotate segments. That night, the six men held a party in a style from a foreign country. I, the youngest, could not yet imbibe alcohol nor smoke opium, so I found it all to be terribly boring. I secretly snuck away from where the party was, but in the darkness I was caught by a sinister Piero. I was immediately beheaded. I will never again be capable of feeling even boredom. After that, there were five honest men left. And so this segment, I think, is significant because it... Sets it in a certain time period. In the... Late 1800s to early 1900s, depending on how far you are into the country. We'll probably revisit that a little bit later. It is, however, also the part that accompanies Shanghai Alice of Meiji 17, the song. Which is 1884. Yes. So it is at least past Ginsokyo's founding, presumably, since that is in the same year. So, segment five. I ran until I couldn't breathe anymore. Being the most cowardly of the group... I was so afraid of this paradise. This was only to be expected, but no matter how far I ran, I couldn't find a way back to our home. All the people I cared about had disappeared, and I thought I had no more reason to live. So in my despondence, I threw a rope over a branch and hung myself. Yet somehow I'm still conscious. Was the rope too weak? I, the most cowardly of the group, had been reborn. I have nothing to lose. So why don't I try pretending to be human just once more? So that's two non-humans now, if you're counting. Yes. One of the group lost their humanity as soon as they entered the paradise, and one of them has just lost their humanity when they died, which is actually a more traditional method of turning into a yokai than a lot of the stuff that we see in Toho nowadays. Classical, for a classical period. A fine classic. Anyway, when we awoke, the five of us found ourselves in darkness. According to one of them, we seemed to have been captured by a mysterious Piero. The other four were coming up with childish escape plans. As the wisest of our group, I knew we shouldn't try to, but I found myself unable to say anything. The four carried out their plans as I thought, but contrary to my expectations, they were successful. After that, I was never able to escape. I killed some time alone in an endless darkness, and soon realized that the Piero was among us. I suddenly sensed a presence of something behind me, but I didn't resist. Then something hot prodded into my back. And this is interesting in that it shows the old fandom adage, common sense doesn't matter, and Gensokyo actually has a bit of a basis. There is no common sense, and if you try to follow common sense, you might just end up... Killed by a clown? Clown food. Common sense is a phrase that I personally have a particular amount of enmity for. One of those things is that it often simply means what's intuitive. And that's not only not necessarily what's true, but it's also very predictable. And yokai are beings that live on human fears. And as part of doing that, they have to be able to subvert human intuition. I think I'll read sections seven and eight together since they're both very short. Our escape was a great success. We thought we were amazingly clever and decided to head back to our new abode in this paradise. It never occurred to us to distrust any of the others in our group. We were all honest men. We all got along so well. This paradise had erected a perfect building to act as our home. An old-looking, western-style building deep within the forest always happily served us. But there's always a lot of food waiting for us, and we can only ever go through half of it. Our group of honest men had fallen to half-strength at some point. I suppose we should recap who is there and who isn't. The most curious was beheaded. The earliest riser was entranced, but is still alive. The most beautiful disappeared after being taken captive. The youngest was beheaded, and the most cowardly is still alive. Technically. Not human, though. The wisest is also dead. Remember, we started with eight. So the dead ones, we know that the most curious is dead. We know that the most beautiful isn't there. We know that the youngest is dead. The wisest is dead. So the most cowardly is still in the group. As is the earliest riser. Which is important because in the next section, in the afternoon, we'd have our usual tea time. 
and every time I'd have bitter coffee, but today it seems to be sweeter. Maybe that's because of the love potion. I, the most mature of our group, fell in love with a beautiful Pierrot, and fell asleep in a state of bliss. After that, there were three honest men left. The Pierrot has never been described as beautiful before, so do keep an eye on that. <laughs> anyway, the next section. I saw my friend, who had very clearly been poisoned. There was no way it was suicide. After all, I picked out the right coffee and brought it to everyone's rooms. I didn't tell the other two about his death. Being the most wary of our group, I neither ate nor drank anything I didn't prepare myself. I desperately tried to stay awake until they were both asleep. We slept in separate rooms and locked the doors. Yes, there was one of the two I expected in particular. The sound of a spike being pounded into a tree rang out from somewhere close by. Just which of them is doing it? My face contorted in terror in the darkness. My hands and feet throbbed in pain in time to the sound. It was just like they were being nailed to something. I thought I should talk to a medium, but then I realized something. That's right, I realized I was being nailed to a tree and I couldn't move. Just who was doing this to me? Then the final nail went right through my forehead. At that moment, I saw the face I expected to see. All light completely vanished, with no time for me to cry out. Now we're down to two of the honest men. One of... And also, this one wasn't killed by the Piero. Well, <laughs> ambiguously. So this one was killed by one of the other honest men who are the most cowardly and the earliest riser. Presumably. And then at this point, there's a brief interlude. Inter... Yeah. There's an interlude from somebody who is probably not a fine person. You were way too spineless. Don't you understand the saying that honesty doesn't pay? Don't you think that sharpened sense from long ago has dulled with such a peaceful lifestyle? Don't you want to hear the bustle of the city once again? Don't you miss the fortune and prosperity? I ended up in a group of thieves with everyone, like the old days, despite wanting to fix my life. Upon finishing my job, I started preparing breakfast and waited for the dawn. Uh, I think we'll go on and do section 11, too, since I think it ties fairly closely to that. Yes. I, the earliest riser of the group, was having a hard time breathing. There was something in this morning's ham and eggs. I must be pretty dense for the group to have gotten down to just the two of us without catching on. It must have been all that person's doing. One of us should have killed him when he went mad. Well, anyway, it's already too late. Seems like I saw a shrine maiden at some point. Was I just imagining it? Or was her hair really that blonde? In exchange for my life, I wish to see that vision again. However, only the first part of the wish came true. So we're down to the most cowardly. I'll just go right into that. After that, I, who had been reborn was assailed by intense drowsiness yesterday evening. My head felt like it was being split open. I can't remember anything about yesterday evening, but it feels like I had a long dream. It would have been even better if I didn't have to face the reality before me. What does it all mean? One was poisoned with coffee, one was nailed to a tree, another was beheaded. I can't believe it. I got the chair and rope ready, and mumbled to myself one last time. Since he had died last, then it could only be the one who was poisoned by the coffee. In other words, is that how it is? That must be it. There must have been something in my dinner. But it doesn't matter anymore. I'm the last one left. I don't have any attachments left to such a world full of liars. This time I tied a good strong rope to the ceiling and kicked away the chair. This time my body didn't fall all the way down to the ground. And then there were no honest men left. Where are they? Dun, 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 dun! <laughs> I'll read the final section. Yeah, it's sort of all one big block. The Shrine Maiden of Paradise sent a peaceful summer, just like every other. One summer day, this was written in the Shrine Maiden's diary. August X. Today's incident started with when I met a beautiful blonde girl walking from the neglected western-style building deep in the forest. I feel like I've seen her somewhere before, but I don't remember every little detail like that. The girl mischievously t stuck out her tongue and quickly bowed as she walked towards the exit to paradise, laughing loudly. Such an odd girl. Come to think of it, that girl was the only woman of the eight honest men. Not that it really matters. Oh, today was just another boring day. There are eight less people in this paradise, Gensokyo, and seven corpses were carried off by yokai. Gensokyo has lost these honest men forever. 
It's just a change in the population count. Not important news in the least. And that is the end. It's certainly tonally the strangest work if you compare it to any other Toho piece. Even the Ceiling Club CDs, which I think are the closest to it, are much more of a... They're not quite as dark. ...investigation and philosophy rather than this dark mystery. I really feel like this story is what it feels like to be an outside world human in Gensokyo, which is kind of scary. <laughs> well, it's very ripe for interpretation, but then we also have the second version of it with the completely different slice of life story. Section by section. And remember, each of these sections corresponds to one of the sections in the original work. And I don't think we need to necessarily read them out all as, just in the interest of time, but while the first story seems to tell each segment from a different explicit perspective, the uh, the second version seems to be all someone's musings. And so the first one talks about it doesn't necessarily seem like all the same person's musings, though. It's not necessarily explicitly the same, nor is it explicitly different people. Yeah. And so the first one talks about, you know, the first emperor couldn't find the elixir of immortality. It mentions Princess Kaguya, which is interesting. Does It seems like it's narrated from the tone of one of her suitors. Yes. And so it talks about Kaguya thinks we can, you know, find the impossible requests and all that, which corresponds to the jeweled branch of Hurai being in the first corresponding segment. The second section is just the musings of one of the shrine maidens who's saying that she saw a strange person slip through the barrier and... They don't look like they're a human or a yokai yet. And keep in mind, this person is referred to as a girl. And that corresponds to the section with the beautiful Shrine Maiden, of course. And in the third section, has someone wondering about the cherry blossoms. Was this released before Perfect Cherry Blossom? Yeah, er, let's see, Comic Cat? Yes, the popular one, I think, had to have been... Two. Let me double check that real quick, but I think Perfect Cherry Blossom was released for Comic Cat 64, and the popular version of Dolls in Pseudo Paradise was. Comic Cat 63? Yeah. Trial versions of Perfect Cherry Blossom were released at Comic Cat 63, yeah. So this is basically a tease for Perfect Cherry Blossom as well as fitting into the story then? Yes. I think that. You could definitely have a reading saying that a certain person is narrating the third section of the popular version. Yes. The fourth version is very 1880s. It's about opium smoke in the human village and people dancing there. The narrator of the section says that the magic won't reach them there. So they're basically trying to run away from the magic that pervades every corner of the area. And this corresponds, of course, to the party that the six honest men that are left have. The fifth one is just someone saying, Yokai, that's pretty uncommon sense. And mentioning, you know, Yokai would live in peace if humans would let them. They're more pragmatic and peaceful. Which is the corresponding section of, curiously, the most cowardly running away, attempting suicide, and losing their humanity. Just wanting to live a peaceful life. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta hand it to you for that. Yep, the sixth section, Enigmatic Doll. Simply it is someone talking about wanting to get rid of a doll, but the doll has such lovely blue eyes, even though a crow carries them away and eats them, because they're real eyes, and she always, well, whoever it is, always puts the eyes in new. And this corresponds to the section where the wisest of the honest men decides to stay behind because it's not, doesn't make sense to try and escape. And where it's in complete darkness. And ends up getting stabbed in the back. Mm -hmm. Section 7 is someone from a circus troupe narrating that next on stage is a bird man. It's one of, it's essentially one of those old freak shows and they're saying... So we took pity on the poor orphan and brought him into our troop. Isn't that kind of us? Instead of 
looking at the fact that they're just using him for profits. And this section corresponds to the escape from the darkness the four men managed to make. So it's essentially both sections are an expose of foolishness. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ones that has the least sort of thematic connection to what's going on. I think seven in both cases is just sort of a... Interlude. The next one, though, ties to not only its counterpart, but to number six very clearly. They're talking about they've wandered into a house... They don't know how long it's been, and there's a doll that's talking to them. And then when they cut off the doll's head, and keep in mind this corresponds to eight, which is when everyone's saying it's such a great building that we're in. It's wonderful. And then this this is, I'm trapped alone in the house with this creepy doll. And when I cut the doll's head off, the rain stops. And we haven't heard about the rain other than earliest in the other story, when we see the Shrine Maiden and when the most beautiful disappears so you could definitely make a connection to that Mm -hmm. section too yeah yeah section nine is one of the more straightforward sections it's about someone saying i'm not stupid my friends would just laugh at me if i told them that i wanted to go buy a love potion and then they go buy a love potion with quite a bit of their savings whereas of course in nine in the corresponding story The love potion is poison. Section 10, Reincarnation, features... Mima. Yeah. (laughs) It's strange that there's a western-style mansion in the middle of a roadless forest. Uh, The girl who lived there hardly ever came into town. But lately this person has seen a girl who looks like her daughter because this girl looks like the original girl who lived there did when she was younger. I think personally that it's just a yokai who hasn't come into town for a while. Yeah. Or a ghost. This corresponds to the uh, section where the wariest of the group is nailed to a tree when they wake up in the middle of the night. The crucial connection here is both of these segments are about recognition. So in the first one, they see the girl and it's like, oh, she looks similar. And in the second, they see the person who's killing them. And they knew who it was, but they couldn't have made their move first. And there isn't an interlude in the uh, popular version. Section 11 is very short and straightforward. You lack imagination, you'd probably fall into their trap. A criminal with as much imagination as you and Owen could easily have a rope around your neck. This corresponds not to somebody being hanged with a rope around their neck, but somebody suffocating from poisoned ham and eggs. Who's being poisoned by someone who formerly had a rope around their neck. (laughs) The last two sort of blend together. So it's just Eternal Shrine Maiden plays as nothing happened today. Nothing will happen tomorrow. Humans and gods don't come here, but yokai come every day. And this is the I who have been reborn commits suicide. Yokai come every day is an interesting counterpart because it doesn't say they died. It says their body didn't fall all the way to the ground. And there were no honest men left. Well, there were seven corpses carried away by yokai, so you can't say that there were an enormous amount of people who lived. No. Unless carried away by yokai doesn't necessarily mean that all of them were really corpses when they were carried away. (laughs) Implicitly, there is one survivor, but this passage is ambiguous. Yeah. It mentions them as I who have been reborn, which is a different reference than the names of the other honest men have been consistent until then. Yeah, there's one, yeah, last closing line, which corresponds to the strange everyday life of the flying shrine maiden. And it just reads, lately, a lot more people are ignorantly throwing out things like, it's magic or it's a yokai. Such a sad state of affairs. I think this is a direct attack on the people who don't try to solve the mystery of the original. (laughs) Yes. Because, of course, you could just say that, oh, it was magic, or it was a yokai that we haven't seen yet who did all this. To dive straight into the, like, interpretation section for a little bit, um, that's actually part of a substantial debate over in that happened in mystery fiction 
around the time that Christie was writing and at her heyday over whether mystery stories should be fair to the point where if you read the story, you could reliably solve the mystery ahead of the characters within it. And that was more or less the tradition that Agatha Christie worked in. The other one was the one that was, I think, represented more by the pulp writers, the Delta de Film Noir, where there's less emphasis on having a mystery that made sense so much as on creating the tension and mood of mystery. And that's really where the mystery and thriller category started branching Yeah, up. and it's less about having the mystery make sense as much as having all of the information available to the viewer at that time. It's about not hiding anything from the reader, basically. And of course, Zun is having it both ways here. The mystery is completely a fair, but at the same time, several very critical facts are concealed from us. So we can eliminate most of the honest men. The most curious is killed right away. The youngest is killed. The wisest is killed. Most wary is killed. Most mature was killed before that. The earliest riser was killed. That's six. And so there's an ambiguous fate of two of them, which is the... Most beautiful and the most cowardly. And so the most beautiful disappears, was taken captive, and unable to return. And there were six left. So the most beautiful wasn't at the party. It's referred to as the Six. So we don't see the final fate of the most beautiful. The Piero is described as beautiful for the first time when poisoning the most mature. And the most cowardly is still there for the entire time. We are pretty much sure that... They killed the most wary because the most wary says... They saw who they expected to see of the two men who were left. Yes. Which means it couldn't have been the most beautiful. When the earliest riser is killed, they mention a blonde person who is also... But here's the... And I don't know... This is where it would be very nice to have had Levander on the podcast today. Because I don't know if it's the translation or... You can ask me. I have some knowledge. Yeah, because my because uh, it's where it talks about one of us should have killed him, and I'm curious if that's one of us should have killed him. I can't remember the precise Japanese gendered pronoun at this time, or if that's one of us should have killed Anohito or whatever. Let me check. It uses Aitsu, which is just basically that person. Yeah, that guy. Kind of rude. So one of us should have killed them when they went mad would be the more appropriate translation, but... It must have been all that person's doing. Again, very genderless. Yeah, that person is very unambiguous, but it's the the following sentence is one where the translation... Yeah, the translation of this actually isn't very good, but I don't feel like spending five hours to translate it myself. So one person does leave the mansion in the final section... And they're described as beautiful and blonde, and the only woman of the eight honest men. But the person describing her is the shrine maiden and not one of the honest men. So that doesn't guarantee that it's the most beautiful. The only time that a blonde person is mentioned specifically by one of the honest men is in relation to the shrine maiden. It's the earliest riser describing, was the shrine maiden's hair really that blonde? So the earliest riser is thinking back to section two, where he sees the shrine maiden dancing above the lake. Yeah, it doesn't mention, or was the shrine maiden's hair really that blonde? It's just, was her hair really that blonde, even in the original Japanese? Yeah, and then the next section is where the most beautiful one is taken captive by the Piero and disappears. Yeah. So I at least think that the earliest riser probably wasn't killed by the most cowardly person. Because the most cowardly person doesn't mention the earliest riser being poisoned. So they're not in the know of how this person died. And it specifically emphasizes that they think they were beheaded by putting the little dots above the characters in the original Japanese. The... Wiki italicizes this, but that's not really a good explanation for the type of emphasis that is used here. Yeah, it's a very unusual sort of emphasis 
you almost never see it in Toho in general. There's two people who use it on the regular, and they both have really, really weird manners of speaking. So they think that the one who was poisoned by coffee was the one who did it. And they think that the person who was poisoned with coffee died last, which is very odd, because in the order of the songs, the person who was poisoned by the coffee died far before the person who was nailed to the tree. So I used to be of the mind that it was the most cowardly, but I think that when we think about it, the most cowardly kills... One person. Two. One that was... Do you think they killed the wisest one? The most cowardly killed the most wary, for sure. We agree on that, I think. Yeah, I would think they didn't kill the one poisoned with coffee. They might have killed the one who was beheaded, but the odd emphasis makes me think that maybe they didn't, and they might... I've also killed the wisest one because they were stabbed in the back and there was no mention of the Piero whatsoever at that point. Yeah, the Piero is mentioned for the first death, the most curious, the disappearance of the most beautiful, the death of the youngest, the third death it takes, the death of the wisest, the death of the most mature. The Piero isn't mentioned after that, so it's left ambiguous as to who killed the earliest riser. But yeah, I think there were probably two culprits, but one of them was pretty aware of what they were doing and one of them was not. Yeah, I think that the most cowardly is like the yokai we see in Forbidden Scrollery, where they are just becoming a yokai. They don't have self-awareness. They're transformed when they try and kill themselves. Whereas the most beautiful, who is our other possible culprit. Basically, they say right away, I stopped being human. And then they complete, basically, their transformation when they are taken captive by the Piero. Please include my air quotes. Only we've seen is that the most curious rushing straight into the depths of the forest. We don't know where the others are at that time. All we know is that the most beautiful was out in the storm. We don't know if they were out there before or after the earliest riser, only that the earliest riser was watching the dance for a long time. All we know is that the most beautiful was taken captive as she was watching the shrine maiden and she disappeared into the rain, whereas the earliest riser realizes the shrine maiden has disappeared as it begins to rain so the earliest riser never sees the most beautiful leaving they may not even see the most beautiful at all yeah they see the shrine maiden in red and white dancing above the lake paradoxically the death that i find the most confusing is the most curious one's death we know that it can't have just been magic or yokai because that's what Zoom tells us in the popular version, but which one was it then? I think it was the most beautiful. It might have been, but the mysterious Piero was the most beautiful disguising herself. The most beautiful never makes mention of getting up of any of that. We know that the earliest riser was long entranced in the morning. By the time they come to their senses, it begins to rain. And then the most beautiful doesn't notice when it stops raining. The shrine maiden has disappeared from the view of the earliest riser. But by the time we cut to the most beautiful one, they can see the shrine maiden as if she's melting into the rain. Disappearing. So they might be seeing her essentially doing something magical, whereas the the earliest riser isn't able to see that because they're still human. And so she says she was taken captive by a Piero and disappeared into the storm along with it and was unable to return. But it doesn't say that she was unable to return. Let me check. I want to say here, this is the time we see the Piero without an adjective. Weirdly enough, it uses Bokura, so it's, I wasn't able to return to where we were. That's interesting. Ah. And it doesn't say to where we were, it just says I wasn't able to return to us. It doesn't mention a place. So I think that's evidence enough of becoming aware of inhumanity. I point this to the Piero thing, because it's called a mysterious Piero, a sinister Piero. The most beautiful one, it's a Piero. She's aware of all that this 
Piero encompasses, essentially. I don't know if the chronology is translated poorly, but it starts off with, you know, I didn't notice when it stopped raining, and then the rest of it is about things that happened while it was raining. She had already disappeared into the rain before she starts narrating section three, essentially. So we know that she's not dead when she's narrating section three, so that's confirmation enough that... She's not dead, and this is after she disappeared into the rain, and... With the Piero. Mm-hmm. And then it says, you know, there's six honest men left, and she is maybe disqualified because she's no longer a human. Maybe disqualified because she's no longer honest. Outside theory. She can't go back. Yeah. That's the crucial thing there. Although it doesn't actually use honest people, it just uses shoji kimono. It has no signifier that this is a human, it's just this is a person. Yeah, the... Honest ones or something, right? So, yeah. Which is implicitly euphemistic for a group of thieves. Yeah, so you could just say that she's abandoned the group of thieves now. Right, and it's, of course, after this point, nobody recognizes her either, so she's still deceiving them. She's being dishonest in a literal sense besides the, you know, sarcastic sense of abandoning the thieves. She is a true dishonest person now. <laughs> to lighten up the commentary a bit, that's pretty gay. She sees a woman dancing and then jumps into the storm after her. Yeah. Yeah. And so that sort of brings us around, like, like Label Co. Jacket Co. is, of course, the big... Uh, Dolls and Pseudo Paradise ship. Yeah, it's it's often tagged Dolls and Pseudo Paradise ship in lieu of a proper name. And I'm personally fond of the notion, you know, one of them is... The Shrine Maiden, from the dates that we know... It's somewhere in the 1800s-ish. Yeah, it's probably the time immediately after the erection of the Hakurei Barrier. It could either be the first Hakurei Shrine Maiden that has experienced Gensokyo or the second one, depending on when in the 1800s this is. This could be any time from the 1860s to around 1900, especially if you're far out in the country like these people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it could easily be the first Hakurei Shrine Maiden, the one that saw the barrier be erected, or the second one that had essentially always been in Gensokyo. If we have the Shrine Maiden, we also have this beautiful blonde woman who's become a yokai, and I think that... A lot of people are like, oh, it's it's Yuka Rei, but I think the more interesting comparison is to Remu and Marisa. Yeah. Yeah. Where we have... Plus, Label Co. looks a lot like Marisa, with her curly hair and... We have the Western-style house with in the middle of the woods, and... Our house in the middle of the woods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know when Yukari emerged in Zun's imagination, but I think that based on how this was... It's possible that she emerged by this time because of the mention in the popular version of the person sleeping under the cherry tree, but I don't think that this person is Yukari. If anything, Yukari may have been inspired by Dolls in Pseudo Paradise, to be honest. Yeah, Yukari has had her connection to Mary from the beginning with her name change from... What was her name in the demo? The other thing is Yukari from the beginning has been a force older than Gensokyo, yeah. whereas this is clearly someone who came in and became a yokai. Yeah. So you established that it's probably a very Raymond Marissa inspired. If we go back up to Slice of Life section, we actually have, I think, some pretty strong supporting evidence for that, you know, brink of transformation to a yokai theory. Because she's not a human or a yokai yet. Right, she's in the intermedial stage. Kind of like what I hoped Kosuz would go to. (laughs) (laughs) I guess kind of like what Marisa is technically currently, because she's very, you know, she's still human, but very yokai-like. I think this person is already undergoing the metaphysical transformation. Yeah. Maurice is on the brink of metaphysical transformation, but she hasn't made the final leap yet. Mm-hmm. I think you can look at them as a case study of what would have happened if Remu and Marisa met, you know, 10 years later. The Shrine Maiden in Dolls and Pseudo Paradise is completely unconcerned about anything but her job. She's definitely an older Shrine Maiden. Yeah, our mysterious murderous blonde 
has lived outside of human society, both as like a thief and outlaw, and then, you know, abandoning her humanity when given the chance, but hasn't got like any pride in her humanity, any connection to humanity, which Marisa develops, you know, after... Meeting basically. Yeah, meeting Remu and sort of moving out of her position as Mima's understudy. I don't know if she would have necessarily become a yokai just because she was with Mima, because Mima kind of is, well, she's described as being more human than human sometimes. Yeah. But the thing is, is that she's still, she doesn't have that connection to humanity. And I think certainly Mima is more human than Yukari, but she wouldn't have been the sort of tethered. She might have even caused Marisa to reject it because she's a vengeful spirit that was obviously wronged by humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting element of it. So the Shrine Maiden note, notes that the beautiful blonde girl is leaving Gensoku, and then the next section, you know, says that there's eight fewer people, seven of whom had their dead bodies carried off by yokai. At the end of it, the blonde girl leaves, and then we go back up to ten, and they note that there's been a woman living in a western-style mansion in the middle of the forest who uh, doesn't seem to age, or has a daughter that looks just like her, but let's discount that right away. Yeah, that's just... Well, silly humans being silly. <laughs> is the, like, how long is there between uh, sections 12 and sections 13? Or does she leave Gensokyo permanently? Right. Is she just going back out to do more hunting? Or is, you know... I mean, there, that's definitely a thing that happens in early Windows Toho. It's mentioned in the prologue of Perfect Cherry Blossom. Although that's notoriously unreliable, I think that at least yokai go outside to hunt humans has been yeah. corroborated. It's not like we haven't seen yokai passing through the barrier even in modern periods with like Mamizo and things too. Yeah, and Forbidden Scrollery. Yeah, there's ways to move in and out. I don't think that's uh, paradoxical necessarily. Yeah, but it does basically say, hey, she maybe comes back. Which would probably be good for her, considering this is probably a huge period of industrialization, and she just hasn't realized that that's not good for her yet. <laughs> you can't really yeah. metaphysically know that you're going to fade into nothingness when you step outside until you go outside and start fading into nothingness. So is there any more we want to talk about the mystery? Because I know we have mailbag questions and things to address. I think we have a lot already, but if we have anything else to say, we can. There's little things that are like maybe nifty connections. They would take a lot of time to tease out. So, you know, in two years time, we could just revisit Dolls and Pseudo Paradise for the uh, deluxe edition or whatever. Deluxe and Pseudo Paradise. Yeah, and this has sort of been mostly a sort of introduction and analysis to a work that people might not be familiar with as much. There was a lot of time that was sort of just us. Here's this segment of Dolls and Pseudo Paradise. Here's some brief observations of it. But that's sort of necessary when you're talking about something like this. That's kind of a... Esoteric. Text puzzle sort of thing. With this work in particular, it's very funny that Zun and Ryukishi Renana are friends. <laughs> <laughs> Considering the very point of Umineko is you shouldn't just try to explain things with, oh, it's magic. And that's a sentence in this exact thing. <laughs> yeah, you can see that they have a lot of that shared philosophy in Dolls and Pseudo Paradise in particular. Even if there is an actual supernatural event, you still can't just toss away the mystery there. There has to be an explanation for how those supernatural events transpired. Yeah, supernatural events must obey their own logic. It's not that you can't attribute something to the supernatural, it's that by making something supernatural, you should not stop trying to explain it. Which is a common theme in Toho in general, really. I feel like that's kind of where their philosophy differs, sort of. Because Yukishi is all about, well, blatantly explaining away the supernatural. But, of course, the supernatural of Umineko doesn't really 
obey any rules, so that kind of has to happen for the mystery. Whereas Toho Supernatural definitely obeys rules and regulations and all those sorts of things. Or rather, Umineko's Supernatural obeys metatextual rules rather than textual rules, which is sort of the whole point and the whole, like, Sea Cats is just a big treatise on axioms of mystery fiction, even before being a piece of mystery fiction itself. Yeah, go read Umineko. Yeah. Anyway, go read Umineko. It's got terrible lesbians in it. If you like Tohu, you probably like terrible lesbians. (laughs) I sure do. So, do we have mailbag questions? Yes, we do. Friend of the show, Clarsta says, Have any of you ever played or read Fantasy Maiden Wars? What do you think of works that show a holistic and Sokyo that differs from canon in significant ways? I've never actually played Fantasy Maiden Wars. I've played the first two, I believe. My opinion on differences from canon is that canon is to fan works what science and history and all of that are to original fiction. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're adhering to them rigorously, but if a difference is significant, it should be explained to the viewer. As long as it's internally consistent and for the purposes of a distinct Gensokyo from canon, the strength of that then you have to keep enough common ground that people will still recognize things. You also have to make your new Gensokyo obey its own logic, too. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be internally consistent, and it needs to be familiar enough that it doesn't feel like a completely different setting with a, and characters and all that with a coat of Toho paint. And Fantasy Maiden Wars sort of does this from a... as, like, half-game adaptations to a different genre and different sort of expectations because it's, you know, a super robot wars pastiche and a lot of its plot points and a lot of its concepts are done through that. You know, the mood and style of regular Gensokyo doesn't necessarily fit the genre conventions there. Sometimes you just have to make everything extremely dramatic. Yeah, and that's fine. Speaking of making things extremely dramatic and gay, watch them for gear. Watch Sinful Gear. Big plug for Mr. Kaneko's Wild Wild Ride. I'm going to watch the next episode once we're done with this. Me too. We can scream about it together. There's a couple content warnings to be had there. We can put the content warnings in the description of the yeah. episode, probably. But yeah, I don't think there's an issue with, like, some friends and I did a Noir Toho AU, which is about as far from, like, regular Gensokyo as you can get, but... but- as long as you make it work. Yeah, the, like the, the human-yokai relationship and stuff can be still translated yeah. into that kind of setting. If you can translate the core themes of the setting to your slightly altered setting, then I'm okay with that. If you toss all the core themes in the dust and start stomping on them, I'm not okay with that. Toho AU, where Reimu is the you know doom guy rampaging through a field of yokai, I think you've missed the point a little. Really, as long as there's enough resonance with the original setting, a lot of the genre tropes can be adapted into pretty much anything. There's certainly enough characters to adapt into whichever sorts of plots you can think of. There's lots of characters that fit different types of plots that would shine better in them than they do in exactly. Canon Toho. There are very few things, I think, that are inherently a bad thing, and a lot of times those, like, alternate world takes, when they're interestingly developed, can be some of the best fan works. I'm not so much a fan of 170,000 weirdly peaceful coffee shops, right? Because I never know anyone who has worked retail and had a life anywhere close to as pastoral as the coffee shop AU. And Toho is definitely the more realistic about work life. Your work life will be interrupted by literally everything up to and including crows trying to get you to sell their newspapers. The appropriate Toho coffee shop AU is just like Yuka running a tiny cafe where every once in a while a group of college junior fairies tries to sneak alcohol in and Kodohime's shown up at the end uh, and, you know, arrested Cerno for <laughs> spiking the espresso or something. 
that transit aside, as long as your changes result in something interesting, like I'm a huge science fiction fan, so I can't really say like, you know, realism isn't what matters, it's believability. And that's the same is true with adherence to canon in a fan work. You don't have to adhere to canon, you have to tell a story that in the lens of the original work is like, yeah, this makes sense. And that can be in a different setting, that can be with different characterization, that can be with different stories, different locations. But there's there's just an element of, does this make sense? That I think is essential to that. And it's just as much yeah. with, with original fiction in the real world. As long as it's believable and as long as it has coherent themes, do whatever you want. With our blessings. Not necessarily. I will, there's there's plenty of things where I'm like... There are some things that I will not, especially in the Toho fandom. With our provisional blessings, provided you run it by us first. And if we say no, don't publish it. I'm not going to give my blessing carte blanche to anything. I think the standards of what is something that's fair to exist and that's something that's like an interesting work is not necessarily something that I would endorse or something I would like. That's fair. We do have another question. Should Wood Zun do more stories about Kinsokyo's past in a similar vein to Dolls and Pseudo Paradise? Considering the vaguely Victorian clothes of the murderer slash Piero cover girl, the presence of an unnamed Miko, label girl, and the old-fashioned Chinese opium party that Honest Men had, which Shanghai Alice of Meiji 17 was composed for, Meiji 17 being 1884. It seems like the story takes place sometime in the 1800s. Modern Zun being too reluctant to develop Kinsokyo further just to keep the mystery is kind of sad. I disagree with the premise that Zun not going into the history is not developing Gensokyo further. Yeah, I feel like Zun has developed the history of Gensokyo enough. Gensokyo doesn't really change that much. The modern time is actually more changed than usually happens, simply because the spell card rules allow change to happen without it being cut down at the knees. Yeah, Gensokyo is an artificially stabilized society. It's constructed, and so that's the thing, is whereas, like, in in real life, the time span from the late 19th century to today is, you know, extremely tumultuous, but in Gensokyo, we don't have institutions large enough for that scale of change. We don't have things that will change because there just aren't things that exist long enough to change. Yeah, there's a village, but it's run by individual people, and there's no real system of government there, so it's just like what individual people can do over their lives. Yeah, and the, the village has no need to grow or change because the needs of the village are carefully managed. Specifically so it doesn't change. The time period before Gensokyo would be interesting. That is interesting. It would be very strange for Zun to do an official prequel work. I think that his specific line of work that he likes to do is he writes about Gensokyo. He doesn't write about the valley that became Gensokyo. He writes about Gensokyo itself and the stuff that goes on in it. I don't think he's keeping the mystery. I don't think there's a like a mystery at all. There's not an we've seen so much about, you know, what Gensokyo is and how it works and implicitly, you know, how and why it was built. I don't think there's some great mystery that would be solved by popping in Yumemi's time machine and, you know, hitting up 1862. It might be nice to see exactly how the Shrine Maiden Yokai piece came about, yeah. but we don't need right. to That's... see it because we can extrapolate it from just how bastard our sages are. There's lots of questions that could be answered, but I wouldn't call any of them a mystery because they're not... You don't look at a Toho work and it's not asking you how did this situation come about. It's what are the consequences of this situation as it exists. When will you learn that your actions have consequences? <laughs> Gensokyo and... Or, well, Toho generally, because... The Ceiling Club stuff is also about this from a almost 180-degree perspective relative to Gensokyo itself, but it's about contrasting contemporary society. And that's like, you know, doing stories about Gensokyo's past is there's no past to Gensokyo. It's a perpetual image of, like, late Meiji life. 
Gensoku's past is essentially the mythological past of Japan. There's no nothing really to expand upon. Maybe you had somebody who was really into like doing a I don't know, 1960s period piece of Japanese life, and that person met with Zun, and they decided to do a music, like a concept album or something together. That might be interesting. And if any of our fandom knows of such a person, then sure, send them our way. But I don't think that's likely. Yeah. In the case of things like Gensokyo, which which Zun always writes broad rather than deep, he's looking at. You know, he's expanding the big picture, and I think there's interesting fan works about the beginning of Gensokyo. It's an interesting thought to develop, but I'm not sure it adds much to canon and it removes ideas from what's left to the fans. Zune doesn't really like to remove possibilities, pretty much. Yeah. Knowing why things are how they are we see that in Forbidden Scrollery. We see that in Wild and Horned Hermit. You can do that in the present. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if it happened, I would read it. It would be interesting. I don't think Dolls in Pseudo-Paradise is a story about Gensokyo's past. Dolls in Pseudo-Paradise is a story about... A few people. Humanity and yokai and a few people. It happens to take place in Gensokyo's past, but it doesn't actually tell us anything about it. Nothing about Gensokyo is revealed. There's just, there is still a shrine maiden, and there are people doing normal 19th century things, which is what we knew already, basically. So are there any, I guess, like, final thoughts for the week? I don't have anything really to say. Uh... Remember that we're doing the Ceiling Club next week, so if you want to ask any questions about that, feel free to go ahead. And if you want to ask any questions about anything whatsoever, you can ask how I would go about climbing Mount Everest. I wouldn't. Just, you could do whatever. Except don't be rude. Don't be rude. You can ask via our Tumblr page, but you can also ask via emailing us at outsideworldoccultism at gmail.com. And our Tumblr page is outsideworldoccultism.tumblr.com. Yeah, I think that's uh, about it. Yeah, take us out, boss. All right, uh, from all of us uh, aboard the satellite Torifune, have a wonderful week. Don't let any clowns get you in your sleep, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. See you next week.